You know, some people say it makes no difference what you believe just as long as you are sincere. This is the personal philosophy of many people in our world. But have they really taken the time to think this through? Is sincerity the magic ingredient that makes something true? And if so, we should be able to apply this to every area of life, not just to the area of religion. Now, many of you know I've had multiple surgeries the last 27 months. I've gone under the knife three different times. I've had a knee surgery, and then uh, less than two years ago, I had a brain tumor removed from my right frontal lobe, plus an arteriovascular malformation that was there that had to be removed at the same time. And then five weeks ago, I had back surgery. And in each of those cases, my surgeon was sincere, and I'm thankful for that. I'm delighted that they were sincere. And they actually came in and checked on me in pre-op, verifying my name, who I was, and verifying what surgery that I was there for. And then they even took out a marker and marked the spot where the surgery was going to take place. Now, why would a surgeon do that? You know why? Because wrong people have been operated on before. Someone that wasn't even scheduled for that surgery in pre-op got the wrong surgery. And I've read an article recently even where someone went in for a knee replacement and they operated on their good knee. They replaced their good knee and didn't fix the other knee. And every one of those surgeons were sincere, but that didn't make them right. I think most of you would agree with me today that it takes more than sincerity to make something true. Faith in something that is false always leads to serious consequences. While faith in something that is true is never misleading. It does make a difference what a person believes. Now I've dabbled a little bit in trying to locate property lines over the years of my adult life. Sort of an amateur's version of surveying. And what I've discovered is that when I locate a survey hub And if I'm using a compass or if I'm using some kind of GPS device, many times my cell phone, and if I'm just a quarter degree off in my calculations or half degree off, when I get to the other hub of 40 acres later, I'm 30 to 40 feet off from where I should be. Two weeks ago, I introduced you to an early church form of heresy known as Gnosticism, where people in the early church believed that they had a higher knowledge, a a higher understanding, an enlightenment that others in the church didn't have. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. But last week, related to this, Pastor James introduced us to the Apostle John's usage of what is known as duality where John is contrasting various beliefs of these false teachers that were cropping up in churches with that of the apostles who had passed on the message of the gospel to the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding regions and had started those churches. And two of the ones that we encountered thus far are light and darkness and love and hatred. Well, in our text today, we're going to learn about a third duality that's used here, truth and error. And what John proposes is that it's not enough. Well, I don't want to say it's not enough. We need to walk in the light. That's what he's proposing. We need to walk in the light and we need to walk in love. But he says Christians must always 
walk in the truth as well. So that's part of it. It's walking in the light, it's walking in love, and it's walking in the truth. Now there's a key word that happens in this text, in these 10 verses or so that we're looking at today. And I want you to take a look, if you have your Bibles open, to verse 19. You're going to see that phrase used. And then look to verse 24, it's used twice there. And then the last verse that we have, verse 27, it's used twice there. Five references to one phrase in a 10-verse section. It's the word remained or remain or remains. And it says remain in Him. It's used over and over here. And the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us that our response to any and all false teaching is to remain in Christ. And as, we've, as, as you look at verse 19 with me here in the text, it says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, as we've just read there, true believers desire to be with the people of God. That's one of the ways you can recognize who's in the truth and who's not. Now, back to verse 18. Dear friends, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists has come. And this is how we know it is the last hour. Now before John can detail any of the tragic consequences of turning from the truth of the gospel, he emphasizes for us just how serious this matter is and what it is that we're actually up against. And to do so, he introduces for us two very distinct terms here. He talks about the last hour, and then he talks about antichrist or antichrists. And both phrases highlight the seriousness of the period that we're living in, as well as our need to guard against the errors of those who are opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, last hour is repeated for us two times. It's, it's mentioned two times in this verse. And remember, Pastor James taught us last week what he taught us in verse 17. Remember that verse in chapter 2? The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And remember the phrase he used? This world has an expiration date. Well, in chapter 2, verse 8, it also referenced this, and this was talked about last week. Uh, Yet I am writing a new co- th- you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Okay? This highlights that there's a change going on, that this new era has dawned upon the world. And since the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, God is doing a new thing in this world. And the days of the evil one roaming to and fro throughout the earth and exercising all of his evil and erroneous ways is coming to an end. It is passing. But if John said it was the last hour, that was nearly 2,000 years ago. What's up with that? Well, what we need to understand here is that God works in time, but God is not bound by time. God is above time. He exists outside of space and time. God is eternal. Do you remember what 
the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter uh, 3, verses 8 and 9, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting any one of you to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God desires that many people will respond to the gospel, and then He says the end will come. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, in the beginning of verse 36 there, it says, but about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. And earlier in that chapter, in verse 4, it said, watch out that no one deceives you. Because it's going to build up to no one knowing the hour or the day uh, when Jesus is coming back. But then it goes on in Matthew after verse 4 that saying no one deceives you. It says all these signs are going to happen. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be nations rising up against nation. There's going to be famines and earthquakes and there's going to be persecution and people are going to turn away from their faith and there's going to be an increase in wickedness and, and, there's gonna, and most people's love is going to grow cold. And then it says in verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, and then the end will come. So it's clear, this hour, these last days we're in, is this period where the gospel is going to be proclaimed. And the determination of when you get to this side of the spectrum is going to be when as many as possible have had the opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. The last hour, or last times as some of your Bibles might say, is a phrase that describes this kind of era that we are living in. It's not describing the duration of time here. It's describing the kind of era that we're living in right now. Now, the second term used here is antichrist. And all of us northern Wisconsinites drive vehicles with antifreeze in our coolant systems. And we do that because we don't want our motors to freeze up in the harsh, freezing cold, the below zero stretches that we get that could crack our engine blocks if all we had in it was water. And even though our motors do have frost plugs, and those frost plugs should blow to help prevent our engine blocks from cracking, uh, we're not going to take that chance. And plus, we want to start them up and go and be able to drive them uh, at a moment's notice. And so we put antifreeze in them. So it's good for up to 50, 60 below sometimes. And antifreeze means against freezing. That's what anti is. It's against. And John identifies for us that the Antichrist is the one who will one day come and head up the final rebellion against Christ. The one who the Apostle Paul calls the man of lawlessness. And here though, John says, even now many come who are against Christ. There are many right now who are anti-Christ. And I ask you today, do you see that around you right now? Do you hear messages at work 
or at school, or when you watch the news, or when you're on social media? Do you hear messages that are anti-Christ, that are against Christ? And do you see those in your life right now who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, unholy, unloving, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? Do you regularly see people like this who live their lives being against God, anti-Christ? And do you see churches right now that have lost their way, placing all kinds of emphasis and all kinds of time and resources around people's identities? their preferences, their human behaviors, placing them even above Christ. Have you noticed even the social aspect of the gospel in some churches being placed above the gospel itself? By the way, anti as a prefix here not only means against, it can also mean instead of, which is frankly what we see a lot today. Instead of Christ, let's focus on this. Instead of Christ's way, let's take this approach. Instead of Christ's instructions, let's follow these other instructions. Verse 19 again in our text. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, us there that's used over and over, that pronoun there is, refers to the church. And it refers to the fellowship of believers specifically because that's the overall context that First John is pointing out to us. Now, there's a couple of observations we need to consider here when we're talking about those who went out from us. First of all, if you ever investigate the history of cults, you will find that a significant number of them, especially among the personality-type cults, many of them were started by people who grew up in Christian churches but left the church. And the same for a number of the participants who are part of these cults and part of these personality cults. Many of them grew up in the church. Now, I can remember when we first came here back in 1988, and we lived in the parsonage. The church used to have one in downtown Poplar. We just moved in. We had our little daughter, Rachel, three years old, and our infant daughter, uh, um, just six, seven months old, Naomi. And we move into the parsonage. We're there two, three days, and who do you suppose stops by and knocks on our door? Jehovah Witnesses. Okay? And nothing shocking to us because I have relatives who are Jehovah Witnesses. And we lived in an apartment complex when we were in seminary in Waukegan, Illinois. And I would commute down to Deerfield where there were a lot of Jehovah Witnesses. So we had many, many discussions and contacts. And, and so that wasn't shocking to me. I mean, I was a little shocked. I mean, they didn't give us two, three days, but we were just there. And they obviously knew it was a parsonage, uh, but it didn't, didn't bother them too much. Well, Two weeks later when I started work, and I'm dating myself here because their computers were really at their initial starting phases. So most people, if you had a good word processor with a tiny screen on it, that was, you were in the, you were, you'd hit the big time. You were, you were high tech back then. And we didn't have Excel spreadsheets and all those kinds of things, but we had something called a Rolodex, okay? You'd You'd roll it through and there'd be cards on it and you could have the information you wanted on it. Well, the, when I went to the church office, there was a Rolodex 
of all of the different people in the church. And I was buzzing through that to see who I knew and didn't know and making notes. And, and I made it a goal to visit two families every week in the church till I got every single buddy, every person visited. And that's what I was trying to do. And I'm flipping through that Rolodex and whose name comes up? But one of the Jehovah Witness women who had stopped at the house to see us just 11 days before. And the thought that hit me at the time was, oh my word, she was in this church. And I said, who is going to be next? And you know what? We studied within a few years 1 John for that reason. We haven't studied 1 John for 32 years now at Mission Covenant Church, but we studied it in 1990 for that very reason. Second observation I have here is one of the clear evidences of the true Christian life is the desire that someone has to be with the people of God. Now, in two weeks, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. And, uh, and here's what the text says there. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. You want to know how someone has passed from being an unbeliever to being a believer? Is because they love the brethren. They want to be with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They want to be around them. And I ask you today, do you desire to be with the people of God? Is fellowship, what we share together in common, is that important to you? See, true believers desire to be with the people of God. True believers also confess personal faith in Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. See, John is working very hard here to equip these early church believers regarding the deceitful teachings of those who are the secessionists, the ones who are stirring up and confusing believers in the church, and then they're leaving. They depart You know, if they really cared and truly were part of us, they would have stayed with us. But they work, you know, agitate things, stir things up, and then they depart. And he says they represent the Antichrist because they're offering to us a message instead of Christ. Now, the Greek word for Antichrist is Antichristos. But now we're being introduced to a new term called anointing. And it's the Greek word chrisma, which we're told is going to aid in protecting people. The anointing is going to protect people from these antichrists who are telling you messages instead of Christ. Now, they both of these words, interestingly, originate in the Greek language from the word creo, which means to anoint usually with oil, to pour on oil, or to rub on an ointment or paint or medicine. And these deceivers are pouring on messages that are against Christ. They are painting portraits of false messiahs or instead of Christ messiahs. But you have, it says here, the anointing of the Holy One. You have received God's outpouring of the Holy Spirit who is within you. Now listen to what it says in John chapter 14 and verse 26. Here's John's words. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said 
to you? How are you going to know what the truth is, what's right? How are you going to know that? God sent his Holy Spirit, the advocate, the one who's there with us and in us. And look what it says in chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, which we know came at Pentecost, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own, but he will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. So you don't need to be victimized by people claiming that they've got these special prophetic endowments, that they've got this enlightenment and these new understandings. You don't have to be led astray by that because you have within you the promised Holy Spirit. You've been sealed in the promised Holy Spirit. You have the advocate. You have the spirit of truth. You have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. That's why you know when you hear something, oh, that isn't right. That, that doesn't sound right. That, that isn't, that's not biblical. That's, you have God's Spirit in you. Look at verses 22 and 23. Who's the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Who is telling the truth? And who's the one who's lying? And how is it through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit do you know who's telling the truth and who isn't telling the truth? Now the Gnostics really gained speed in the second century and the third century. So we're toward the end of the first century here when John's writing this, so it's just in its infant stages. But basically they didn't believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God is spirit, God is holy, all that, and he can't embody a body and come into a body that is unholy and evil. And basically in summation, that's kind of Gnosticism in a nutshell. There's many variations. But here's what John is saying. Liars deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, then you are denying Him both as Savior and Lord, the incarnate Son of God who came here to die on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, went into the grave, rose from the dead. If you are denying that, then you're denying Him as Savior and Lord, and then you're also denying God the Father because Jesus said in John 10, 30, for I and the Father are one. Look at verses 24 and 25. As for you, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He promised us, eternal life. As for you, stick to the message you've heard from the beginning. Remain in it. Some of your translations will say abide in it. Do not veer to the right. Do not veer to the left. Stay on message because we serve a crucified, risen Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. And John said in John 1, verse 9, but as many as received Him, to them gave you the right to become children of God. This is what's promised us, eternal life. And true believers will confess personal faith in Christ. True believers will also recognize deceivers. Who are the deceivers? Now John has already pointed out to us in chapter 1, verse 8, that we can deceive ourselves. Remember that? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not 
in us. That was one of the claims that the, the Gnostics made, that they were without sin. Uh, we also can be led astray by others. Verse 26 says that. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Chapter 3, verse 7 says the same thing. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. So we can deceive ourselves, we can lead ourselves astray, we can be led astray by others. And in John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 44, he talks about the real deceiver, the one who's behind all of this, the, the evil one, the devil. And his very nature is to be a deceiver because he's a liar and the father of lies. But look at verse 27 now. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is, was, has taught you, remain in him. Now this is not saying here that we don't need the teaching office in the church, so Pastor Darrell, please sit down. We, we don't need this, okay? We don't need you teaching us anything here today, or Pastor James, we don't need that, or Pastor Nathan, we don't need that teaching office in the church. It's not saying that I, we all need to start looking for new jobs. And it's not saying that we don't need anyone to teach us anything, or especially any human beings to ever teach us anything, because we have the Holy Spirit, and so therefore, and there are churches that believe that. That, that, that human teaching is wrong. Uh, but you have to put yourself here into the context. And the context here is doctrinal error. And it's saying to us, you have what you've been taught. You have the historical, apostolic witness of the church. You have been given the word of God. You have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's been carefully passed on to you. And you have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that will verify the truth. So you don't need some special enlightened teacher from, from somewhere else or even from within to teach you and lead you to the truth. The anointing you have the outpouring of God's Spirit upon you will verify everything. It's real. It's not counterfeit. You know, the world's greatest uh, experts on counterfeit money uh, are often asked how they get so good at recognizing fake money. In fact, people think they must study all of the fake kinds of money that are out there so they know how to recognize them. And the experts uh, across the board will say, no, 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 we don't do that. We study the real currency of our nations. And we get to know that so well that it becomes easier for us to spot that which is counterfeit. Well, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. The Spirit in you will affirm in your heart what is right and what is wrong. You know, the abject economic conditions in Germany after World War I set the stage for Adolf Hitler to rise to power. The German treasury at the time was very low on gold. Her budget was severely imbalanced. Inflation was uh, uh, increasing and seriously on the rise. The German mark at the time was worth 25 cents for every American dollar. Four years later, by 1923, inflation had skyrocketed to the point that it took four trillion marks to equal the buying power of one United States dollar. The German middle class lost all 
of their savings. The value of every person who had a pension in Germany was completely wiped out. Most people's assets and securities were gone. It was then that people became ready to listen to a demagogue like Hitler who would give voice to their bitterness. It was Lenin who famously said, the surest way to overthrow an existing social order is to debauch the currency. Well, let's fast forward to modern America where inflation is beginning to overwhelm the average American worker. A steel worker in a mill on the south side of Chicago, Illinois with a wife and five children to support and a salary just north of $50,000 a year said recently, you really want to revolt when it costs you $80 to fill up your vehicle with gas or $300 extra a month just to buy food for your family. If you can even find the food you're looking for, you want to revolt. But what can you do? He said, I keep waiting for a miracle. Someone to step up with a solution for our country. And we will follow him like he is John the Baptist. I need to tell you folks, without question, the conditions are ripe right now for antichrists to step into the void. Right here in America. And frankly, all around the world. But I want you to know this. True believers are the ones who can recognize deceivers. Let's pray. God, our Father, we know that this word here to, in 1 John has been written for the church. And the church has needed this for 2,000 years or nearly 2,000 years right now. And false teaching can crop up from all over. But God, it often comes even from within the church. And Lord, uh, there's hardly a church that's existed for any period of time on this planet that hasn't had to encounter this. But thank you, God, for the reminder to us today of how important it is to us to stick to the truth of the message that's been handed on to us. There are individual Christians that are, or people that are abandoning it. There are churches that are abandoning it. But God, you've invited us to stay true to that message. And you reminded us of the importance of the anointing of your Holy Spirit that we have to help us safeguard between truth and error. Oh God, I pray that we will be able to always recognize what's the truth. And God, no matter what the consequences of having to follow that and live that out are, that God, through it, you will be the one that gets glorified and worshipped. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.